Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new edition of my podcast, Grit, Stories of Resilience. A few months ago, I was at a small gathering, a private gathering, and a very wonderful person named Ann Smith was talking with me. And she introduced me to a friend of hers and said, this is Jim Blackburn. He and Wade have so many stories to tell each other. So many stories. And you should, it will take you all afternoon and into the evening to hear them all. I've often thought what a wonderful and fun book it would be. It would be a, not a long book, but a short book to write about the comings and goings of Wade and me over the last number of years. We tried a lot of cases together, Wade and I. Some against each other, some on the same side. I started out in private practice living off the rejects that he gave me. And then when I was in deep trouble a long time ago, he represented me to the best of his ability at no charge, along with Rick Gammon, also at no charge. It's tough to forget things like that. So it came to be about two years ago that I asked Wade to allow me to interview him for a series of programs with prominent North Carolina attorneys, which he, of course, agreed to do. That interview is what is the basis for today's podcast, pretty much intact, because it's never been heard or seen by the general public. It has been seen or heard by several lawyers and paralegals over the course of the years, but not a huge audience. And therefore, I'm going to talk for just a few minutes about Wade, introduce him to you, and then get out of the way and let this interview with him and me take place. You will hear him talk about McDonald representing the Lieutenant Governor of North Carolina, Jimmy Green, one of the students in the Duke lacrosse case, and other cases which are not so well-known or prominent. You will hear him talk about his philosophy of how he came to be as a practicing lawyer, how he came to do what he's done, what he believes is important. It's very entertaining. You will hear humor. You have great thoughts, and you simply enjoy yourself. And in telling you a story about Wade that is not covered in the uh, interview, I want to go back to the summer of 1979. And it was the last day of the trial of Jeffrey McDonald. And we were making closing arguments. Each side had been given a certain amount of time to argue, and we all divided it up. There were four lawyers, two on their side and two on my side. 
Brian Bartal being the other one, Bernie Siegel being the other one with Wade. And towards the end of the afternoon, Wade was supposed to speak for an hour. An hour of Wade Smith. Oh, it's just been awful for me. The courtroom was packed. Everyone was prepared. He was ready to go. And he never got the chance. Because Bernie, quite frankly, wouldn't stop talking. And ran through all the time, leaving Wade 60 seconds to make a one-hour closing argument. We took a break. I was really concerned that Judge Dupree, the trial judge, might, you know, give Wade more time. And I didn't want that. So in an effort, perhaps, that looked really gracious on my part, but was also done in part out of survival mode, I offered Wade 10 minutes of my time trying to preempt the entire thing, if he, of course, would allow... Uh, that the judge would allow it, and Wade took it. I never will forget, as he walked to the podium, he said, well, you know, ladies and gentlemen, I'm always told that no souls are saved after 15 minutes. So 10 minutes here today should be fine with me. I will only say that in those 10 minutes, he got the jury really, really quiet. And I shudder to think what might have happened had he talked longer, but he didn't. Two years later, we're trying another case in the United States District Court in Raleigh. Earl Britt is the presiding judge. It's an environmental law case. Roger was, Ray's brother was helping him try the case. I had an assistant uh, who's a lady lawyer from Atlanta uh, with the EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, helping me. And we were selecting the jury. And there were six jurors we could get. We could challenge six people. I lost count of the challenges that I had, and I used all the six up. So I just took a deep breath and hoped for the best. And there was one more juror to put on the bench, I mean, on the jury bench. And this young man got up there and sitting in the jury box, and we all asked him, the judge asked him the questions, and he, everything was fine. And then as a throwaway question, the judge asked him, do you happen to know any of the people here in the courtroom today, in the parties. And he looked around, he said, well, yes, I do. He said, well, who do you know? Well, I know the defendant, Buck Ward. Do you know him well? Well, pretty well, we're friends. Have you ever been to his house on a social occasion? He said, yes. And I, uh, my eyes just rolled in the back of the head, and I said, judge, can we approach the bench? Yes, come on up. We go up to the bench. I said, Your Honor, I move that you take him off for cause because of his relationship with the defendant, Buck Ward. And Judge Britt looked at me and says, well, Jim, I think that you should certainly take him off. But he looked at a sheet of paper, but you can't because you don't have any more challenges. You have outsmarted yourself, Jim. You weren't paying attention or something. I don't know. But I'm going to leave him on because he was truthful. And then Judge Britt put his hand in front of the microphone and said, Jim, you're going to lose this case if you're not careful. And Wade Smith leaned forward, said, Your Honor, I've been wanting to pay Blackburn back for a couple of years for giving me that time in the McDonald case. And with your permission, 
I would like to offer him one of my jury challenges. Judge Britt paused. He said, well, this is highly irregular. I've never heard of this being done before, but what the heck? No, who's going to complain? Okay, you can do that. Jim, do you want to take this juror off? I said, yes, sir. Okay, he's removed. Now, I've told that story lots of times. A lot of lawyers don't think that was right. Wade well, shouldn't have done that. Who knows? All I know is this. Judge Britt nominated Wade for an award on professionalism to the Fourth Circuit Court of the Appeals in Richmond, Virginia. On the basis that he cared about the administration of justice and the court system as much as anything. That's Wade. That is absolutely Wade Smith. For 50 years, he has set the standard of what a professional lawyer should be. And the fact that he was a criminal defense lawyer was even better. I always hated to try cases against Wade because they were hard. There was nobody on earth that I would rather beat more than Wade. Because if you beat Wade, you were beating the best. But he would always make you better. Always make you better. It wasn't always struggle and strike with Wade. We had some humorous times, lots of funny times. We were interviewed once in Chapel Hill of a radio station. We were each talking about each other in a three-hour series. And... Uh, the announcer turned to Wade and said, Wade, do you really believe that Jeffrey McDonald is innocent? And, and Wade said, I tell you what, if there were two buttons on this desk and one said guilty and one said not guilty, and I knew that if I pushed the wrong one, I would die immediately, I would push not guilty. And right there, right there, right after he said that, I broke up laughing and said, Wade, you know you don't believe that. Good gosh, what on earth are you saying? And he said, what? It's where it interrupted the whole program, but it was funny. It was funny. The only other thing I remember for that, it was we were doing deep background, and Wade and I were trying to outdo each other on who had the hardest time growing up. And Wade was talking about how they didn't have a great deal of money growing up, and he was poor, and He's pretty good at this sort of stuff. I only thing I can remember is that the announcer turned to me and said, well, Jim, you were sort of like one of the rich kids in the town of Wake Forest with your father being a Baptist minister. I said, listen, a Baptist minister in the 1950s in eastern North Carolina cannot be considered rich. What the heck are you talking about? Such was the charm of Wade Smith. And it, you know, it's just something to see. Anyway, I hope you will enjoy listening to this podcast with Wade and this interview. I think you'll be entertained. I think you will learn something. And I think you will just enjoy a good time. Wade, thank you so much for doing this interview with me this afternoon. It's a real privilege and an honor to talk to you again. Jim, it's my, my pleasure. I enjoy all my interactions with you going back a long, long time. And um, 
I'm just so happy to be with you and spend a little time with you. Good, thank you. You know, Wade, I don't think many people know that you were once a prosecutor. Yeah. I know you don't want that to be told, but you were, you were, you were once an assistant district attorney. Oh, I was. I, I, uh, I enjoyed it. Uh, that was my first job after I clerked at the Supreme Court with Judge Higgins. I needed a job. I didn't have a job at that time. I, I'd interviewed a little bit and, do, and looked around, but uh, I just uh, was kind of waiting to see what could happen. And there was an opening down at the district attorney's office in Wake County with Buck Ranstall, who was the prosecutor, a really great fellow. And Burt Montague, who was uh, uh, connected with the courts at that time, right. said, Wade, you ought to go down there and, and uh, interview. So I, I said, well, why not? So I went down there and uh, I got the job and I enjoyed it for about two years. I, uh, I, I had never been in a courtroom before. I mean, to see anything. And it was pretty amazing to me to see, uh, but I, I enjoyed it, and I could be a prosecutor again. I, I, uh, it's, we're in the same on the same side uh, in so many ways. We represent our state and our nation, uh, and I, I've always thought, well, okay, you know, give me a fact situation. And let and uh, and let me be a prosecutor, and I'll look for the arguments that ought to be made by a prosecutor, and I'll make them. And if you say no, I want you to take the defense side. I'm fine. I'll take the defense side and make the arguments that they ought to make. Uh, and uh, so that's it's the same. It's the same thing. There's really very little difference, and we're we're representing. Uh, an individual, but also our our state and our country. You know, how did you come to set up your law firm, Fenton Smith? Well, so I had interviewed uh, a, a number of places, and the people were very nice to me. And and um, but I, I had this feeling. Not, you could say it was arrogant. I hope it's not arrogant. But I just felt like I could do it better. I felt like uh, I could create, uh, along with Harold Farrington, who was such a perfect partner for me, I felt like I could create a place uh, where it would be a pleasure for people to come and work. Uh, and I had confidence that we could provide good legal service for people and that we could we could do it really right. And I wanted it to be right. I was very idealistic about how this thing ought to be. And uh, and we thought it through with great care, bought our own furniture and put it together with screwdrivers and pliers and um, opened up on September the 1st, 1964. And we've had good luck. Uh, we took any people who came to us, people, lawyers sent, sent them to us. 
uh, when they couldn't represent someone or something, they would send them to us. We appreciated that. And we really tried our best to do a good job for people. And they kept coming and they kept coming and so far so good. It's been That's now, we had, we had our 50th anniversary several years ago. How come your name didn't go first? That's a good story. So we, my partner, uh, Harold Farrington, again, a marvelous lawyer and the perfect partner for me. Um, he said, okay, he had joined me. He would go in with me. We'd do it together, by golly. We could do it. So uh, we, and we were sitting up in my office in the uh, building where the Supreme Court is still working up there. He, he, he clerked for Susie Sharp. Okay. And I, and I clerked for Carl Higgins. So we put um, his name in a hat with three pieces of paper and my name in the hat with three pieces of paper. And we agreed that whoever lost would get his, his choice of office space. So we drew out five pieces of paper and his name was remaining. And so it was Thangton Smith. That's pretty good. And Thangton Smith has a better ring to it than Smith Thangton. <laughs> uh, that's, a, that's a gracious way. A gracious way to put it. You know, one of the things, Wade, that uh, I've always known about you and that people have said about you mm -hmm. is that you bring a different touch to the practice of law from many people. And you and I have talked about this over the years, but there's been a consistent theme to you, it seems to me. And what I'm speaking about is the theme of, of niceness, of graciousness, of kindness. How did you determine that was the kind of lawyer you wanted to be? Well, you know, um, so I think I've told you this before. My grandfather was an old time Baptist minister at a little, little, uh, little Baptist church in Rockingham, North Carolina on the Mill Village, East Rockingham Baptist Church uh, on the Mill Village, Cotton Mill. And when I was a little boy, <clears throat> he used to tell me that he was called to the ministry. Uh, he was a farmer down in Stanley County, had uh, eight children, and uh, his wife died, and he was with those kids. And uh, he said that uh, he was called to the to the ministry and I said well what did it sound like I thought maybe it was a, a loud booming voice uh, and he said no no it's a feeling it's a feeling that you get and you know like Jonah Jonah was called and and fought it and and so so the story goes was swallowed by a large fish and all that uh, that's a very interesting story and I think apocryphal in many ways, but, but it's a good story because it, it says to you, you can't run away from the feeling you have about what you should be doing. This feeling chases you around. And so the feeling chased me around when I was in high school and when I was in uh, undergraduate school. 
being a lawyer was what I wanted to be and what, what I felt in my heart. And, and so then uh, as to, as to why, I, why I chose the, the particular uh, method, I guess you'd call it, um, it's, it came also from, um, it's, it's theological, if your enemy hungers, feed him. If he thirsts, give him drink. Be not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Uh, and uh, as the Dalai Lama says, uh, when asked what his religion was, he said, my religion is kindness. So I, I always thought that as a lawyer, it was appropriate to be kind. You could be kind to your opponent, and if your opponent is, is uh, mean, you can return good for evil and be kind. So anyway, whatever that is, uh, it worked for me. How did you determine that you primarily wanted to be in the area of criminal defense? Well, uh, you know, I, I was uh, an English major. I loved words all my life. I love the idea of choosing words and stringing them along into sentences. And I grew up understanding that as I was an English major, 500,000 words in the English language. And what a joy it is to just, if you want to make a sentence, great, pick out the really good ones. Select from 500,000 words. Select the best ones, the ones that really mean the most. And I realized I saw my grandfather preach many times. I've seen him make big, strong men fall down their knees and weep. And he did it with words. He didn't have to twist their arms behind their backs or do something mean or hurtful to them. Words, the, they're so powerful. And, and I, I love words. And I've always enjoyed finding the right ones and stringing them into sentences. And, um, and that's um, what I, that's what I studied in, at, at Chapel Hill in school is English. And, and words and language and reading. I like to read and I read as much as I possibly can. And in the great books and Dickens and uh, the French novels, um, you can see the, the amazing ability these writers have like Charles Dickens to select the right words and make sentences that are just really powerful. So it's, it's great and I enjoy it. And that's part of what caused me to do what I do now. What, in looking back, uh, how long do you practice law? How long have I been practicing? Yeah. About 60 years. In, in that, yeah, in that time, You've had, of course, some very high profile cases. Uh, 
What ones stick out most in your mind that you can recall where you were proud of what you did in the conference, whether you won or lost, though how you did them? I'm sorry. What? Which ones did you do you think turned out in your mind are the most significant in your career? The cases. Well, well, I mean, really, the most significant in my career would have been cases nobody ever heard of. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would be um, instances where people came. Maybe I didn't even get a fee. People came, and I had the joy of making something happen that is the pain of of a family or some individual. So the cases, yes, there have been many, many what you would call high profile cases. I was lucky enough to get uh, those uh, appreciated. But uh, I mean, like Duke Lacrosse, Duke Lacrosse is always a a case people mention, uh, and you and I had great cases together. You were my favorite prosecutor, you know that. Uh, and I, I felt like um, you had the same approach to juries that I had. And uh, no one could out nice Mr. Blackburn. <laughs> I could try, but I felt like if I can go there, I. I can. I felt like that your style was the perfect prosecutor style. Um, you never came on came on strong. So anyway, back to my cases. Yes, there were plenty of cases, like the Duke Lacrosse case and many others. Um, and I appreciated those, and uh, in in so many ways. They, uh, they were what brought me to the dance, sort of, you know. When did but, you, yeah, go ahead. But the ones, the ones that meant the, the most to me, there's one I can think of now, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to mention the name, but a college president from a small college uh, called me and he had been in Raleigh he was on some commission and he was arrested for a, a, a minor offense, but and I won't say what it was, but he said to when he came with tears in his eyes, this is the end of me. Because even if we try this case and win it, it'll be the end of me. And so, um, there was a young prosecutor down in Wake County, a woman, and I had felt uh, that I really got along well with her. So I went down to see her and I told her about this case. And I said, and this was an older gentleman. I said, if, uh, if this, this man will go to three nursing homes in his county, and visit the loneliest people there and do that once a week for a month and write a report and give it to you. Will you dismiss this case? Yes, she said, I will. And so that's what happened. She dismissed the case. It was 
something a prosecutor has the power to do, but not every prosecutor would do that. I really appreciated that. But that's a small case, but it, it gave me great um, contentment to realize that this man could go on and live out his life. No one ever knew. No one ever knew about it. Um, several years ago, I read his obituary. He had an honorable life, a very good life, a life of service, and he died and no one ever knew. That's a great story. That's and it meant as much to me as any of the great big cases I ever had. You know, I think you hit on a point that lawyers have such a capacity to affect people's lives. Indeed they do. Particularly in criminal defense matters. Yep. Uh, not everybody is accused of something awful. They're accused of things that just are embarrassing or awkward or things of that nature and the ability to solve their problem and bring them peace is such a good a good thing for you to do or anybody to do. And this, the case I was just telling you about would have been embarrassing. Yeah. It was that type of case. In, in the deep uh, lacrosse case, when did you, you had one of the clients who was- I had one of the three boys, yes. And it turned out to be the charges were dismissed. He was declared to be innocent, I think. Yes. I uh, Roy Cooper. Yes. When did you first sense that you had somebody who was innocent? Well, uh, it was it was right far along because people were marching in the streets beating pots and pans. Everybody was saying to me, those boys should be strung up. Uh, and and uh, it seemed like at the beginning that they were absolutely guilty. And that's that, that case has meant more to me in terms of what you learn. And I learned in such a powerful way that things are not always what they seem. That, that is so important in the work that we do. Things are not always what they seem. And you can take a case and it looks terrible. But you have to understand that your client may be just as innocent as she can be. And, and so I, I learned, once again, I've learned this lesson over and over and over. Don't make snap judgments about whether people who are coming to you are guilty. They may not be. That came to me probably halfway through that case. Amazing. Do you stay, still stay in touch with any members of that family? Oh yeah, I do. Yeah. Those boys have already done well. They what is your what is your client? What did your client wind up doing with his life? Uh, he's in business. He's in. He's living in New York City, and in business, all of them are in, in business. Um, and somehow, this case did not ruin their lives. And, and 
it could have. It could easily have ruined their lives. And you know, um, I think you could, you could, you could take a case like that and say, okay, uh, I'm, I'm going to just try it. We'll see what the jury says. I don't know whether you're guilty or not, but you say you're not. Let's try the case and put it up, up there and see what happens. And you can testify. Maybe the jury finds you not guilty. But it, it goes way, way beyond that. And the most dangerous thing in the world, as you well know, is to just take a case and say, let's try it out. Um, I don't know. I don't know what the truth is here. Let's try it out. But in that case, we, we worked very hard to find out what the truth was. Uh, and uh, we looked at everything we could possibly look at to tell us what, what the truth was. And as we got into it and got into it well, we realized they couldn't possibly be guilty. There was no way they could. And um, that, that turned out to be true. It's a remarkable achievement. You know, you and I met each other, I think, Wade, in the spring of 1979, when you were a lawyer in the McDonald murder case. Yes. And I tell this story many times. I remember you and I became friends then. And I remember uh, the trial started and you were making the opening argument uh, for McDonald. Right. I remember I turned and you'd been talking for about two or three minutes. And I turned to one of my co-counsel. I said, I am shocked. He says, what is it? Wade Smith is trying to win this case. <laughs> I love that. I, I had some, that's the truth. And somehow I, through naivete or something, I convinced myself you were going to really be on our side. <laughs> we had, well, we had I become, love that. We had, we had, I love we had, that, Jim. We had become friends. Well, that, you're a person whose side I would like to be on. Well, that was so funny. I remember I remember we had some disagreements about something. We went back to your office. This is back in the old place before overlooking the some the courthouse or somewhere. And you raised the windows and got Wade Hargrove in there and you all sang songs. We did. Hour. Yes, we did. And I think Sid Eagles was on the across the across the mall and raises the window to listen. I think people would do that across across Federal Street. Well, Wade Hargrove is an amazing musician. Uh and he could have been that and made a pretty good living. But uh, he's, he's been my, my pal, musical pal. And so uh, over about four o'clock in the afternoon, on many days, he'd come and bring his guitar into my office. I'd have a banjo in there hanging up on the wall and we'd play and sing. So that's what happened when you were there. That's fun. You know, I've also, the, 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 I've told this story at least 500 times I know about the fact that uh, at the close of that trial, which went on a long time, as you remember, you were to make the final summation or closing argument for McDonald. And you did speak for eight or nine or 10 minutes, but you did not get to make yes. your speech. You did not get to make your presentation. I, I, what would you have talked about? What would you have said? No. Well, I, um, so 
I remember, I, I couldn't possibly remember the words now, the exact words that I, I would have spoken. I had I had the speech written down as we always do, you know. I have no idea where that is. And I haven't looked at it in 40 years. But I remember I worked hard on it. And um, I recall, um, I recall thinking, okay, but at that time in my career, um, I had had a lot of cases that were jury trials. And I felt like that if you can get, if you can be at the top of your, your profession, I don't mean at the top in rank, but I mean, in what you wish to do with your life, if you can work on it for a good while, you can feel comfortable that you are competent to do it. And I felt at that time in my life competent to do this. I'd had many, many jury trials, a lot of heavy duty jury trials. And, um, and I remember working hard on this, this thing, but, but my, my theory as I recall was it had been a hard case a sad case, a hard case. The facts were terrible. Um, it was a painful case and stressful in, indeed. And I remember thinking that I wanted to tone it down uh, and I wanted to make an argument uh, that would be kind uh, and would be uh, gentle. And, and thoughtful. And I remember thinking that I could do that by talking about the thing that I've, has been one of the things of my life, which is a life is evidence. A, a life, I, I've, I've had that carved in a piece of wood on my desk. A life is evidence, not one one event, yes, it is evidence, but your whole life is evidence. And if what you are accused of doing doesn't match your life at all, then that's a good argument. Yes. And I remember thinking that. I remember thinking, okay, a life is evidence. This man's life is evidence. So I will talk about his life. I will talk about his life and I will have as my goal to persuade the jury to the idea uh, that there was a reasonable doubt. And I remember that I was, and had always been fixated with the idea in all of my cases before that. If you've got a little bit of doubt in your mind, about something, you chase that doubt into a corner so it can't get away and take it apart. And if the pieces make sense, that's a reasonable doubt. And uh, I would have used that argument, I'm sure. Uh, but the, the argument didn't get made and now belongs to the ages.
And of course, the reason that it didn't get made was not anything to do with you, was the fact that Bernie, your co-counsel, simply talked too long. Well, yes, uh, he did, I guess. And, uh, you know, I've always been grateful to you. You gave me some time, some of your time you had left. And uh, as for Bernie, my co-counsel, I've always said good things about him. Uh, I think he was a, a really very competent trial lawyer. Um, and I uh, appreciated him and enjoyed being with him. Tell me, what uh, is that when you got to know Joe McGinnis? Yeah, that's when I got to know Joe, yes. What, I know Joe, as you know, and what what was Joe like to you? What was he What was he like? Well, uh, the thing I liked about him was he was hilariously funny. And the hardest I've ever laughed in my life were times when I was with Joe, uh, and and we could we could find something really funny to laugh about. Joe knew that it was not. Uh, something that a North Carolina lawyer would do to make friends in a trial with a person who's brought into that trial to write the story of that trial. It wasn't something that we would do in North Carolina. Uh, we didn't do that. And so he knew that my view was he had no business in our meetings. Uh, he had no business in in very, very important moments when we were talking with our client. Um, but he was there because he was invited to be there, not by me. And I made the best of it. I uh, was kind to him and enjoyed, after all, his company. He was a, he was a doggone good writer. He was. He and was. a great man. He was a great man. He's gone now. Uh, but he was a great man, and I, I respected and admired him. What was working with McDonald as a person, not as a defendant? What was he like as a person that, that you can tell us? Well, uh, I mean, the truth is that I liked him. He, he might have been on his best behavior with me. I don't know. I took him to church with me. He, he went to church at Pullen Church, sat there with me and he enjoyed the service. I took him home to my family and he had, had supper with us, with the children sitting around the table. Uh, he, was, he was fun for them, they liked him. And um, so I, I, liked, I liked Jeff and uh, uh, felt like I could see good things in him. Um, so um, I had a good relationship with him. You and I also were involved in uh, representing Jimmy Green, who was Lieutenant Governor. Absolutely. And you won that case. And, and my, the thing that I've still tell, there are a lot of stories about that case, but, but the one that I still remember the most, the most devastating thing that has ever happened to me in a courtroom as a trial lawyer 
was when our primary FBI agent witness testified on direct examination and you all and went to you all for cross-examination and there was a pause and one of you, you and Howard Twiggs were representing, one of you stood up and said, you had no questions. That absolutely threw the prosecution into a tizzy. We weren't ready for that. Weren't ready for the next witness, and I think it was just, I've always believed that was the smartest move I've ever seen a trial lawyer make. Well, I've always <laughs> believed that the best cross examination is no questions, uh, and I, that was my witness. I remember that. Yeah, that, that was my witness, and he had been on the witness stand for two days, and I had my cross examination which I don't know it would have been successful, but, but I had that idea at that moment. We didn't plan it. Uh, that um, there really wasn't some fancy question that we could ask him. Uh, and so it seemed to me that the coolest move we could possibly make would be to say no questions. And I'll always remember him being sharp. And then he gathered his papers together and he, he, he almost, you know, he, he seemed uh, sad. Like, well, I haven't said anything that bothered them at all. And so I appreciate your saying that, that it's you thought it was a good move. It's the truth. Uh, it was it, it was deflating. It was a move we made at that at that moment and not planned it uh, earlier. But I thought I've always thought that Charles' defensive Jimmy Green was close to masterful uh, in that case. Well, you know, we we uh, I really liked Jimmy, and I miss Jimmy. I think of Jimmy a lot now. Uh, what a what a remarkable guy! I'm sure he had his faults, um, but but you know he was a country guy. He was a tobacco salesman, a tobacco farmer. There was something really colorful about him. Um, he wasn't perfect. He didn't he didn't put on airs. He he uh, didn't make any pretense of being perfect, and. Uh, he was great fun to uh, represent. I enjoyed him. Yeah, and may I say, you well, tried that case very well, indeed. You tried it very well, but it was a, it was a hard case for the prosecution to win because he was our our sitting lieutenant governor at the moment. He was. Yeah. He was. And so he you was. did a great job. It was just a hard case for you. That's the case in which uh, I come to you at the end of the uh, trial. And uh, I, I had said, I said, you know, Wade, the, one of the bailiffs had said to me while we were waiting for the jury that he'd been in the jury room and he couldn't tell me what they said, but they were laughing, <laughs> which was not a good sign. <laughs> and I remember asking him not to let the jury come back for a couple of hours so it wouldn't look so bad on me if we lost. And you thought that was funny. I said to you, well, um, 
what am I going to tell the press? What am I going to say to the press? And you said to me, well, let's go in this room and talk about it. And we went in there and you can tell the rest of that story, but, but it's a great story. Well, I remember, this is the way I remember it. Uh, you, you were, even though you were my, you were the prosecutor, I still thought the world of you. Uh, and you never pulled any punches. You never did anything that I felt like was inappropriate for a prosecutor to do. And I trusted you completely. And you, I knew that you'd do everything you could to win. And you didn't pull any punches whatsoever. But, but I really liked you and felt, felt at home with you. And so my thought was this. What you say to the press is, what good news for the people of North Carolina that their sitting lieutenant governor did not commit this offense. Uh, and I think, is that right? That's what That's I right. think I said, yeah. Which was, I thought, the truth. I have to tell you, I don't know if I've ever told you this before, but there's a well-known lawyer in Raleigh whom you would know, said to me one time, one of the reasons that he went to law school was he read my comments on what I said and thought he wanted to be that kind of lawyer. And then I said to him, well, that's wonderful. The problem with that is those aren't my words. <laughs> that's Wade Smith's words. And he looked at me and says, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> well, they were yours too. That's funny. Oh my God. Yeah, the final a couple of things, you know, I've always told people that uh, I always like to ask this question. How many lawyers do you think have ever told their client to go home and read the Sermon on the Mount? <laughs> I don't believe I know of a single other lawyer in the world who has ever said that to a client. And yet you said that to me when we were trying to decide what to do in my case. What, why, did you, why did you come up with that thought? Well, uh, it, it, it really uh, is so much uh, my philosophy. Um, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Uh, and, and humility. Humility is all through the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and um, I remember... I wanted to make a point to you that you were going to get through this. You were Job, you remember? Yes. You were Job sitting by the side of the road, um, covered with sackcloth and ashes. There was an awful lot in your case of philosophy. You were a great man. You had made a mistake. Don't we all? You were going to come back. The way for you to come back was to not, not futz around with the, somebody and try to get a deal. Not talk to the prosecutor and try to say, okay, I'll plead guilty to one, but not any of this. No. The way for you to return, as you would, I knew, was to plead straight up, just like it was not ask for a deal, not ask for anything. I'm guilty, 
I did this. I insist on, I insist on doing it. I insist on pleading guilty. Uh, and I, I, and in so many words, I insist on paying for it. And so you were the great client because you did all the things I wanted you to do, which much of which was uh, in the in the great philosophy of the Sermon on the Mount. I uh, told that story to a, a young lawyer uh, from Greenville, North Carolina, a couple of years ago, and she was having some issues as well, and uh, suggested that she read that and do that, and she did, and she it helped her immensely in her decisions. I'm so glad. Yeah. And and then she went so far as to do research on where the concept of walking uh, an extra mile goes comes from. And it seems that the American people are not the first people who built an interstate with mile markers, but that the Romans had mile markers. Amazing. Yeah. That's what that yeah, it's, it's it's remarkable. You know, I asked you one time. Uh, what you thought was the best advice you could give to a lawyer or really anybody in the legal profession as to do and how they should handle themselves. And your comment was to me, you've already alluded to it here this afternoon, was if your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. What do you mean by that in terms of the practice of law? Well, you know, um, if you, if you uh, are working on a case and the lawyer on the other side is, uh, is behaving badly as you feel, uh, is, is trying to play tricks, uh, is telling you untruths about discovery, um, you you return good for evil. I mean, you 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 uh, return, you are kind in to this person. It works. It, it seems to work every time, and you, it's counterintuitive because you think, okay, well, you you're really you're really going to get hurt. You you're not going to make a very good lawyer because you have to be a jerk to be a good lawyer. You have to be a total ass to be a good lawyer. People have asked me that before. People, people say to me, you really have to be a jerk, don't you, to be a good lawyer? And I say, no, no, you have to be the opposite. You, you have to be kind to be a good lawyer. And you have to be kind to people on the other side. You have to tell the truth. My goodness, we we are truth tellers. We believe in telling the truth. We don't tell untruths to each other. We don't tell untruths to the court. So the thing about it is that it works. It does work. It absolutely does work. Finally, let me, have you, what do you think of, are you optimistic about the legal profession as you look forward to the next number of years? Yeah, I'm, I'm optimistic. 
Um, I think we are going through a period in which it's hard to be optimistic. Um, but I believe that we should cling to the values that we are taught in law school and hold on to the values that are, are in our uh, regulations about truth telling, about telling judges the truth, uh, about seeking the truth in our work with our cases. Um, I think that we should hold on to the things that we have believed in and not uh, adopt a philosophy in which we can say whatever we please to a judge, whatever we wish, no matter whether it is true or whether it is not true, that won't get it. It's not going to ever get it. And um, I believe very much that we should stay with the things that we have believed in and the, and the, the ideas that we have cherished. Are you glad that you decided at a young age, your grandfather's church, to become a lawyer? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, goodness. I can't imagine doing anything else. And, you know, there was a time in my life um, when I got involved in politics. I enjoyed being in politics, ran for the General Assembly and won and served in the General Assembly and then served as the um, chair of one of the, one of the major political parties uh, and uh, went across North Carolina talking about uh, the beliefs of that particular party uh, and uh, considered at that time, maybe, well, maybe, you know, maybe I could, maybe I ought to be in politics, but, um, I said, no, finally, I, I believed that I wanted to see what, what uh, I could do, what else I could do as a lawyer. I used to tell people, I wanted to see how fast this horse would run. When's the first time that you can remember being on national television as a sport? As a lawyer? No. I think it is when I was an athlete. You were at Chapel Hill at UNC. Yeah. yeah. And what position did you play? I played I played running back. And didn't you play your uh, third cousins a few miles away? Yes. That was on national television, wasn't it? That was on national television. Yes, it was. And do you remember the score? I remember it. More, more people from Carolina come to my seminars than Duke, so I can ask this question. So. Well, I, I, so I, I, would, I would say this. That day, you know, our coach had died, Jim Tatum. Right. And um, we had... We had never realized our full potential as a team that year because our coach died and we just couldn't get it going. 
uh, we toward the end of the season we we got it going, but we decided that we we were playing at Duke. We decided we would dedicate that game to our coach who had died, and so it brought out I think the best in us. The truth is, we really loved those guys at Duke, and that's not no joke. We knew them well. We they all played high school football. We played with them. They were we knew every one of them. And we respected and admired every one of them. And uh, the, the truth is that they didn't have a good day. They, the, we weren't that much better than they, but I think we were a little better than they were. I think it wasn't at 50 to nothing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you scored at least a little bit, I think. I don't, I don't remember. Uh, and isn't it also true that you once played in California? Oh, yes. We played in this, and we played Southern Cal. Yes, we did. In the, at the Rose Bowl? At, at, uh, we played at the, one of those bowls, yeah. 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 That's pretty good. I still run into someone, Wade, a friend of mine, whom you know, Gray Pool. Oh, and, yeah. I love and Gray that. comes up to me. And right, he yeah. says at least once a month, he wants a recount. He wanted for years. He wanted to re, he ran against you for president. I think he did. Class. You're president of the class. Great, he's a wonderful guy. And he says to me, he says, Jim, they came to me and asked me to run for president. I said, okay, I will. Who am I going to run against? They said Wade Smith. He said, well, thanks for nothing. So he, the last time I saw Gray, he says to me. I think the better, he always said, ends this conversation was the better man won. <laughs> well, I think it would have been better if he had won. Right. That's the first time I'd met him. What a great fellow he is. Well, listen, I want to thank you for doing this interview this afternoon. This has been well, great fun. It's been fun. I've enjoyed and I hope, it. Jim. I hope people, I will think that people will enjoy it. And Maybe they will. But I it's been so. fun to be with you. And I always enjoy my moments with you. I hope you have enjoyed this podcast with Wade Smith. I really do. And I hope that you will come back next week to another new episode. It'll be the Monday after Thanksgiving. And I look forward to seeing you then. Grit Stories of Resilience. Don't forget to let your friends know about these podcasts. Send them an email. Put it on social media. Click follow. Anything you can. Thank you so much and have a great week. See you next Monday.